0: And I hope you all haven't minded that I've taken over the pulpit for the last few weeks, but I wanted to make sure that I just let you all know that I've appreciated the opportunity. Honestly, I've learned a lot, and I've really enjoyed the challenge of leading through um, Old Testament scripture, and it's just been really encouraging to see what we can take away from this and what we can learn about our lives today while doing that, so I appreciate it. Um, But As I've mentioned each week, uh, I wanted to use the book of Joshua as a case study on obedience. So each week, we kind of talked about a different aspect of obedience. Let me see. There we go. So we'll go back. Oh, I gave away my map. That's all right. Okay, so week one, though. Week one, we looked at how God instructed Joshua to be strong and courageous as he began to lead the Israelites through the big plan that God had for them. And we learned that we can obey God's commands by trusting that God is always with us. That was week one. Week two, we looked at how God led the Israelites into the promised land by parting the Jordan River River, and instructing them to build a memorial to remind themselves of the great miracle that he had done. And we learned how obeying God's commands requires us to remember God's faithfulness and his power because forgetfulness is the enemy of faithfulness. We talked about that. Then last week, week three, We looked at how just one man disobeying God's commands about the city of Jericho caused the Israelites to lose a very easy battle and God's instructions on how to remove that from their midst. And so we learned that God takes our obedience seriously. He takes sin seriously. That sin is truly a big deal, but we also learned that God loves us enough to show us how to deal with that sin, right? And so now this week, we get to move on to a lesson that will close our time in Joshua. And ironically, even though we're looking at the book of Joshua, our final lesson is going to come from a guy named Caleb. So today, we'll be, looking, uh, we'll be taking a look at Joshua chapter 14, um, which I did not mark down the page of. So if somebody finds it, shout it out. So that's Joshua chapter 14. 241, thank you. So in that Pew Bible, if you want to, it's on page 241. And just as we've done each week, to learn from the Old Testament, remember, we have to keep things in their proper context. We always have to zoom out and see where the Israelites are in their story, in their journey, and how they are walking with God. So this week, we're actually going to have to take two zooms out to make sure we understand everything going on. So imagine you can see the Israelites. We're looking at them. For today's context, we have to zoom out a little bit to see what's going on during their time in the promised land. But then we're also going to have to take another big zoom out all the way back to the first time that they came upon the promised land 45 years earlier. So if you're anything like me and you think very visually, this is how I understood. As soon as I was looking at this and wrote that down, this is what my mind did. So first, say we're looking at a map of Swansea. This would be the exact moment in Joshua 14 that we're going to be reading from, all right? So if you're from Swansea, you'll be familiar with what's up there, all right? But then you have to zoom out. Let's see. Maybe. There we go. All right? And you have to zoom out and look at where Swansea is located in all of Lexington County. This is going to be our view when we are just looking at the Israelites' most immediate history when God has guided them into the promised land. And then we're going to take one more zoom out, and it would be kind of like viewing all of South Carolina, right, and all of its entirety. This is going to be looking at all the history of the Israelites for the last 45 years leading up to the scene in Joshua 14. And so believe it or not, in this view from 45 years ago, the Israelites are actually right on the border of the promised land. They're right where they were supposed to be. And so this comes, we're going to, you don't have to flip there, but this history comes from Numbers 13. Some of us are probably pretty familiar with this story, but for us to understand exactly what's going to happen in Joshua 14, we have to understand what went down in Numbers first. So Numbers 13 recounts the story of when God told Moses to send spies into the land of Canaan, which was the promised land. And so Moses had led the people out of Egypt through the wilderness, and they were finally getting close to their destination. God told Moses to send spies, one from each tribe of Israel, So 12 spies, and they went into the land, and they wanted to come back with a report of what was there. And the report was supposed to be about the land, the people that lived there. Um, They needed to see if they were strong or if they were weak. They were supposed to look and see if there were few or many. And then they had to look at their cities and see if they were fortified, and look at the land to see if it was rich or poor, and look at their trees and come back. There was all kinds of things the spies were supposed to look for. And they had to bring back fruit from that land as well. And so among these 12 spies, of course, there was a young man named Caleb and another named Joshua. And so after their trip, they went, they spied, and they looked. After their trip, they returned and gave a report. Ten of the spies all reported that the people there were strong and the cities were strongly fortified. But the Bible tells us in Numbers 13 that Caleb stood out from the rest of them. It says, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses, which I just want to stop there for just a second. At this point, Israel, the, the people of Israel are huge. There's a lot. And somehow, Caleb quieted all of the people of Israel before Moses, which to me is just a huge feat in and of itself. But anyway, it said that he did that, and it's, it says that he said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the rest of the spies, other than Joshua, they all continued to tell the people how hopeless it seemed to try and overtake the land. And at this point, Joshua and Caleb both begged the people not to rebel against God and trust God that he was going to be with them. But the people did not listen. And so as punishment for their mistrust for not obeying what God had told them was going to happen, they were destined to wander the wilderness for 40 years before they could actually enter the promised land. And so I wanted to zoom out and see this big moment in Israel's history because it shows us the type of man that Caleb is. The first in, this is the very first encounter you see of Caleb. So the first thing we see is a strong push to trust God. He urged the people to just trust God, to do what they were supposed to do. We see that he wanted the people to trust God first on his own. He stood out in front of all the people by himself and said, hey, we can do this. And he did that by himself. But then he stepped out with Joshua and then he begged them again and said, please do not rebel against God. And so in both of those instances, we see a strong faith that he has in the word of God, that he fully trusts God in the face of crazy, unlikely odds. And so when it seemed completely impossible for Israel to move in and overtake the land, Caleb was one of the only ones that had faith in the promise of God that He would be with them, and so not just that—it's the fact that He also had enough faith to go against ten other spies, and that He had enough faith to go against in the entire rest of the country. When almost everyone else He knew wanted to rebel against God, He stood firm in His convictions. He remained faithful. And we need to remember that about Caleb, because in just a moment, when we turn to Joshua 14, we're going to see more about Caleb, and it's going to influence what we're seeing. So now, that was, when, that was like looking at all of South Carolina, right? So now we're going to zoom back in one time to look at the more immediate story of Israel in the book of Joshua that we've talked about a little bit. So as we move in to look at chapter 14, when we're looking at like, the county of Lexington, that's where we're at right now, we have to see where the Israelites are now. In the book of Joshua, remember, God has now led the people into the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan River, and they have begun conquering the land. He caused the uh, walls of Jericho to fall down. He split that river for them to get into it, and then he caused the walls of Jericho to crumble after the people were just shouting. And even in moments of defeat, like what we looked at last week, God still makes it evident that things are only moving forward by his power and his might. And so now we're going to be picking up at a time where Joshua has led the Israelites through numerous victories. At this point in chapter 14, there is still land that needs to be conquered, but enough has been taken that now it's time to start dividing the land up amongst the tribes. They're at a strong enough point where God has stopped Joshua's battle campaign, and he's instructed them to start divvying up the land amongst the tribes, amongst the people. All right? And so that brings us finally, where we can zoom all the way back in to where we're going to look at in Joshua 14. We're going to be doing something a little different than what I've done the past couple weeks, because the last times we've looked at Joshua, we've had to look at whole chapters or even two chapters in the book, all right? But today, we get to keep our attention at around just nine verses, all right? So let's go ahead. We're going to look at Joshua 14, and we're just going to read verses six through 14. So I'll start. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time the Lord has spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day of Moses sent me. My strength now is my strength was then for war and for coming and for going. So now give me this hill country where the Lord has spoken on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite to this day because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. So I'll pause for a second. Let's pray real quick, and we'll jump in. Dear God, thank you for today. Thank you for this uh, word that we have here in Joshua. Thank you that we can still learn from these old stories, and we can still see what they have to do with our lives today. I pray that you would be with us. Help us just to stay in your truth. Help my words to be your words, and just help us direct our hearts towards you, God. And we love you so much. Amen. All right, so. We see here, Caleb is requesting the inheritance he was promised because of his faithfulness back when he was a spy. Throughout the passage, we see Caleb refer to the anchor of faith, which is God's promise. Verse 9 showed us that promise. That's where it's at. In fact, there five times in the passage that Caleb refers back to this promise from God. In verse 6, 9, 10, and twice in verse 12, if you want to look at it. It's there. He keeps referring back to what the Lord said. And so his request for his inheritance is nothing but what God has promised him. He's not asking for more than he's supposed to receive. It's just what God had promised him. And that right there is an exemplar for faith. That's how faith works. It pleads God's promises and it anchors itself on God's word. And we see here how faith is acting towards that word. Caleb may seem overconfident or maybe greedy to some of us in some sense when we look at this, but I feel confident in saying that is not the case here. Caleb is faithfully taking action on the promise he knows that God has given him, and his faith is genuine. Once again, he is willing to take action on what he knows what God has said, just like he was back whenever he was a spy. Just like earlier, when he was in Canaan, he was willing to trust that God would deliver them, the land, despite it looking impossible. And so again, we see Caleb 45 years later. He's again willing to trust that God would deliver on his promise, even if he was old and the land was still run by enemies. His faith is genuine. We forget that a lot of times we're not called to have huge faith. We're called to have genuine faith, right? Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke. Um, it says the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. So our faith doesn't have to be huge, it just has to be real. And one author put it this way, he said, it's not so much great faith in God that is required as a faith in a great God. So let me say that again. It's not so much that we need great faith in God It's just that we need faith in a great God. And that's what we have. We have a great God. So if we have faith in that, that's what we're supposed to see. And we see this is the actions of Caleb here. We see what's going on. And Caleb gives us a perspective on that faith, how we're supposed to look at faith. If you look at verses 10 and 11 in chapter 14 right there, it says, Now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years, since the time that the Lord spoke these words to Moses. While Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So he looks back on what God has done in the past and is reassured by what will happen in the future. This is how faith looks at things it looks back in the past at God's goodness there, drags it into the present and then praises God for it, and uses it as strength to move forward. I think that's so cool to understand that that is the purpose of faith. Looking back at the past, dragging that goodness of God into the present, praising God, and then having strength to move forward with it. And it always ends with looking at what is next assured of God's grace. For Caleb, he was able to look back at all the miraculous acts that God provided for the people of Israel. So The manna from the sky, the being led by clouds, being led by fire, splitting the Red Sea, splitting the Jordan River, um, making the walls of Jericho fall down. He had all these miraculous acts to look back on. But we can look back at those as well, but our strongest moment of God's grace that we get to look back on that Caleb did not have is that we get to move forward knowing that there was a sacrifice from Jesus Christ. The fact that God sent his own son to allow us access to himself gives us hope and love to move forward into the eternity and into action and into whatever is in front of us. That can give us hope for whatever is there. Even if outcomes aren't what we want or what we expect, we can find hope in the eternity that Christ offers. We don't have to, we don't get to hope like Caleb did that God doesn't promise us victory over everything in our lives. That's just not what's promised. To Caleb it was. For us, we are promised eternity, and that's where we can look. That's where our hope lies. Excuse me. And so the fact that God sent his son to allow us that gives us so much hope. And so, verse 12 shows us the energy that Caleb had based on his faith. He refers to the Anakim. If you're looking at verse 12, he says the Anakim that are in the land. So, back in the story from the first time they were there, back being in Canaan, there were reports of Anakim being. In control of part of the land that were there was there. And the people were scared because the Anakim were these huge people and they just seemed really, really scary. And so they are still there. He's saying the Anakim are still there. So Caleb is here asking for his inheritance where those exact people are staying. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows that there are people there that are going to try to defend the land, but he's able to trust in God. He's not rebuffed by something that looks scary to human eyes. This is exactly what made him stay, stand out in front of all of the Israelites. Oh, sorry. He didn't stand out because he was an optimist while the rest of the Israelites were realists. Back when he was a spy, it wasn't that he was just optimistic and everybody was like, no, nah, that's just not realistic. We can't do that. He stood out because he was a believer in God's word while the rest of the Israelites refused to be. The sheer difficulty of the task gave Caleb energy to move forward because it was an opportunity to trust in his father. He knew that it was going to be hard. Those Anakim, whatever they were, strong enemies, he was looking forward to that. That gave him energy to move forward because he knew he could trust in his father. And so we see how throughout Caleb's life, he trusted in God's word. He was obedient to God by having a life that showed faithfulness. From the time he was 40 all the way to 85, he's showing that nothing changed. He had a long life of faithfulness. These are the only stories that we know about Caleb from the Bible. We know the first one when he was 40, and we know this one now. But we know his faithfulness was strong at both ends. And he never backed away from what God promised. He held on to it. And that is the goal that we can all strive for. A direction we can all try to point our lives in to live obediently to God by living a life of faithfulness. That's what Caleb shows us. And so learning from Caleb, we understand that obedience means a life of faithfulness, a life filled with trusting God, holding on to God's promises, and truly committing to God's commandments because of that trust. So if we're to be faithful in all that we do, we have to follow God's commands. We have to be willing to do that, just like Caleb was. When we look at Caleb for inspiration, He's an example of knowing God's promises and fully committing to following his word. And we can look at his life and see that he was, above everything else, concerned with what his Lord said and fully dedicated to making sure he was living that out. That is what made him stand out compared to all the other Israelites. He gives us a goal to shoot for, a goal to point our lives in. And it should give us pause in our own lives, whenever I say that. Are we fully dedicated and making sure we are following God's demands? Are we concerned with trusting in what our Lord says about everything else? Does our life show that fact? Do our lives match up with what we see in Caleb's? What kinds of things does that mean people should be able to see in our lives? What kind of things should we be able to reflect on in our lives and see that shows God as our priority, just like Caleb? For him... It meant trusting that God was with them and moving forward in confidence to take over the promised land just while they were being commanded, just like they were being commanded to do. For us, our commands are a little different. We're not commanded to take over lands and move into fortified cities, but we do have other commandments. We are commanded to do things that will clearly show whether or not we value God's word or not. And get ready because I intend to really challenge us all right now and possibly step on some people's toes, including my own, by the way. So get ready, all right? One of the things that we are called to do is to pray. We are called to prayer. It is a commandment. All over Scripture, we are commanded to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We have to pray without ceasing. That means a continuously talk, uh, we continuously talk with God, and that should be going on in our lives every day. Not a day should go by, go by where we do not talk to God. And I'm talking to myself when I say these things too, not just you guys, I promise. But you, th- you have to think, are there ever days where you forget to pray? What kind of priority does that reflect of God having in your life? Look at Mark um, and Matthew here. So we have Mark chapter eleven twenty-five and Matthew 6, 7 through 8. There's one word that I want us to pay attention to in these verses. So let's read them real quick. It says uh, in Mark, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And then Matthew 6, it says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think, that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So both of those verses start out with the same word or the same phrase, when. Whenever you pray, when you pray, that means prayer is just an automatic. It's just assumed that we are praying, all right? If we are Christ follower, it is a given that we pray. And so what is our prayer life like? Is it just automatic in our lives, like the Bible assumes it to be? This is one of those commands that shows what our life is focused on. And that's something hard to face sometimes. But another command that we have is fellowship. Again, all of our scripture, we are commanded to be in fellowship with other believers, to be living life and be in active ministry with them. Acts 2.42 sticks out in my mind when this topic comes up. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This verse sticks out to me when this topic comes up because of Pastor Mark, actually. Recently, when he took us through Acts, I don't know if you all remember that, but he really, really tried to take us through that book as quickly as he could. He tried to cover as many verses as he could each week. And sometimes we argue with him about that, but he does. I've talked to him. He tries really, really hard. But I remember when he got to this verse, he told us he felt obligated to slow down and take a few weeks just to look at this one verse. And he took each of those four actions and took a week to break down what each of those meant. And because of that, that second action that's in this verse, fellowship, it shows that there is some expectation that we should be devoted to fellowship. We should be devoted to living life with, uh, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Not that it should be on the back burner or take second tier to anything else in our lives. It should be a top priority. Again, in Hebrews, we see this commanded as well. This is one of my favorite verses, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it says, um, it's definitely one of my favorite in this topic. Let's read it real quick. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love this verse. I love verse 24 especially. We should be stirring each other up to love and good works. That means we should be encouraging each other and building up each other up in love. We should be challenging each other to do good works, to make those good actions that make us stand out to the rest of the world. That's what stir up means. We, if we just sit stagnant and we don't challenge and we don't talk and we don't do anything, we're just calm. We should be stirring each other up to get that stuff done. And verse 25 tells us that we should not be neglecting meeting together. So yes, this fully means that we should be attending church. We should be here. All of you are here on Sunday morning, so I'm preaching to the choir on that one. But that is a great starting point for being devoted to fellowship. This is a great place for us to work together and get to know each other and work in ministry together. But fellowship is more than just the church building where we see each other. It's more than that. Fellowship means living life together even outside of these walls, outside of Sunday and Wednesday, we have so many calls to live life together. That's a Greek word that um, a lot of theologians bring up is that word uh, koinonia, means fellowship. And that is just wrapped up in the idea of living life together with God. God is involved, people are involved, you just can't do it on your own. And First John has another command here. In 1 John 4, 12, it says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So 1 John has a lot to say on this topic, honestly, but I wanted to point out that loving each other is the meter test for us to see if God abides in us. 1 John is filled with all kinds of tests for us to look back on our own lives. And for this one, it says, if we're truly devoted and following God, We will know that God abides in us and is perfecting love in us if we love each other. That is a requirement. That's how we know if God is in us, if we're loving each other. So how can we love each other if we're not in fellowship with each other? So I told you I'd be stepping on some of your toes, right? Is anyone uncomfortable yet? No? All right, if you're not, I've got one more. Might make you comfortable again. All right, so the next one is we're also commanded to be in God's word. This one is very basic, but it's one that we have a hard time with. So I'll start with 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It's such a strong verse that advocates for reading the scriptures. This is what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We see that here that all the Bible is breathed out by God. All of it is beneficial for us. For teaching, for reproof, which I'm going to be completely honest. I had to look up that word. So in case you're like me and don't know what it means, it means pointing out sin, pointing out something that's wrong. So it's for reproof, for teaching, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. That's one reason we know we can trust that even the book of Joshua, which we're looking at and examining Caleb's life, that it is breathed by God and it is beneficial for us too. Not just the New Testament, but the whole scripture. And then verse 17 here, it says, this is how the man of God is made complete. If this is how we know we are supposed to be completed, how can we ignore reading the Bible? How can we ignore the word of God? Again, I'm challenging challenging us all on this fact, including myself. The Bible that we have, that we can readily hold in our hands, was specifically breathed by God, for all of us to have. And man, to me, that just means this Bible, this word is so precious. It's so important. This is a work that God has crafted all of history for, for his people to use and follow. We talked about this in Sunday school a little bit today, but God has guided and moved and created all of history so that we can get to the point, and now we have this Bible. Now, if God wasn't in control of everything, the Bible wouldn't have ended up the way it did, but we have it. And so look at Colossians 3.16 as well. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're told here to let the word of Christ dwell in us. How can we do that if we don't get in the word and read it and know it and have it be a part of our lives every single day? If it dwells in us, we can teach each other, we can sing psalms, we can have thankfulness towards the Lord, but it starts with the word of Christ dwelling within us. If we don't know the word, how can it dwell within us? And I know this is something that we probably all have heard before and probably a lot of us are convicted about, but we have such ease with access to the Bible today. It's so easy for us. We don't have to fight and save money um, to own books like people did have to do back in the past. We have the Bible in our homes so easily. We have the Bible at our fingertips, or, or sorry, our fingertips, in just three seconds on our phones by pulling up an app. And we can listen to podcasts. We can pull up sermons, and we can grab audio books. We have so much access to the Bible that we have no excuse. We have absolutely no excuse to not have the Bible in our lives each and every day. And that is, that's, I'm being completely honest, that's hard for me too. That is something that I'm speaking to myself. And so even without explicit instru- instructions, again, we see that knowing and being in the Scriptures is just an assumed task that God's people are part of, excuse me, all throughout the Bible. So I'll I quickly call your attention back to Joshua chapter 1. When God told Joshua that he would be with him wherever he goes. In Joshua 1.7 it said, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And he tells him, do not turn to the right or turn to the left, that it shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And in this way, we see it's not just in our heads, and we're just thinking about it. It says that it will not depart your mouth. It should be something that we are talking about and something that we should be thinking about day and night. It should be fully encompassing in our lives. And again, just like uh, it's assumed here in Joshua in Acts 17, that gives us another example of how it's shown that God's people should be in Scripture. In uh, Acts 17:11, it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And I love the description that they received with all eagerness. They were excited to be in the Word. They were examining it. They were looking into it. What a great attitude we can all strive for to be in God's Word. And I bring all these things up, the prayer life, the fellowship, the being in the Word, because these are the types of things that we are commanded to do today. We saw in Caleb's life that it represented faithfulness by being obedient to God's commands. His whole life. We saw it stretched out. Everything we saw about Caleb, he was devoted to God, and he was obedient to his commands. So if we're to be inspired by him, if we're to be pointed in the right direction by Caleb, we have to take the commandments that we are given seriously. We have to have them in our lives as a priority. They can't be things that are second tier, on the back burner. They can't be something we'll get around to if nothing else comes up. No, they should be at the top of our list, at the forefront of our minds. And we will learn so much about obedience from the books of Joshua. I think it's just incredibly appropriate that we end here today and we see that a life of obedience means a lifetime of faithfulness. We have the tendency as humans to give ourselves wiggle room and experience cycles of like extreme zeal or extreme depression when it comes to our spiritual life. We change month by month, sometimes day by day on how excited we are on how excited we are to make sure that we're keeping God as a priority. But Caleb's life shows us that even after 45 years, we should be keeping the same commitment to God's promises and his commandments. And as Michelle comes up, just to keep this in our minds, that a full life, Caleb shows us 45 years of full commitment. And from what the Bible tells us, his attention did not waver. Just like he told Joshua, it doesn't, go from the left to the right, He sings about it day and night, we see that he is fully committed his whole life to what God commanded. And what an inspiration for us to try to follow. But I can't stand up here and say that's easy. Obviously, that's hard. All these things that we're called to do, all these commandments that we know God has given us, they're hard. We're humans. We're sinful. It's, we give in really, really easy. But we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. The Holy Spirit brings us back. The Holy Spirit guides us in how we're supposed to live. And all we have to do is trust in God and trust in the very first promise that we saw in the book of Joshua, that God is with us. He does not leave us nor forsake us. And that's how we can trust in the promises of God. If we have that there and we know that we are anchoring our promise, or sorry, anchoring our faith on that promise. So I just encourage you to, Take those commandments, the, the praying, the fellowship, the um, being in the word, all those things that we struggle with. Pray that you would keep them on your minds, that you wouldn't just push it back. When you feel convicted, the Holy Spirit is there saying, hey, this is something you need to work on. This is something that you need to do better at. Follow that. That's what we're supposed to do. God is guiding us to build a relationship relationship with him day to day. So, I'll pray for us. I appreciate everything that you guys have let me be up here, and I hope that it has been encouraging and challenging for you guys as well. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this life of Caleb that can be an inspiration to us, that we can fully commit to your commandments and not let them be second tier, that it will be a top priority for us, God, um, and that we are able to do that and be different in the world around us, that people notice, man, he is praying. God, man, He's in the Bible. He is fellowshipping with the people around him, God. I pray that that will be what our life looks like, that people notice it because we are following your commands and trusting in your promises. Be with us this week as we are around those people and help us just to shine your light as bright as we can. And God, we love you so much, amen.